Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 11, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, because we believe this to be your word, not just uh, words that have been collected by mankind, but that you superintended and supervised that, we ask for your wisdom in considering it, not just in analyzing it, but in applying it. And we pray that we might learn and that we might learn of Christ and his magnitude and power in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I never had a sister growing up. I was the youngest of four boys, very, very active, competitive boys. Everybody knew the Heitzig boys. No sisters to balance things out. I felt sorry for my mom sometimes because she was sort of outnumbered with all of the testosterone in our family, but she did okay with it. Now, my wife, Lenya, on the other hand, grew up with a sister, an older sister by 18 months, Suzanne, and uh, they're very different from each other, but they're very close to each other at the same time, and they share a lot of love between themselves. One woman once said, having a sister is like having a little bit of childhood that can ever be lost. But things do change, and people do change. As we grow older, our events in life and our circumstances definitely change. That's true for everyone. It's true also for these two sisters that we consider this morning, Martha and Mary, both sisters, both who lost a brother named Lazarus. I heard a story about three elderly women. One was 96 years old, one was 94 years old, one was 92 years old. They were all living together in their latter years. They had all lost their husbands. They were all in one house together. And one evening, the 96-year-old decided to prepare a bath for herself. So she was running the bath water and she put one foot in the tub and then she stopped and she said, now was I getting in the tub or was I getting out of the tub? The 94-year-old sister heard her downstairs and she said, I'm on my way up, I'll help you, and I'll, I'll let you know. And as she was going up the steps, she stopped. And she said, now, was I going upstairs or was I coming downstairs? Well, the 92-year-old was overhearing this. She was in the kitchen having tea. And she shook her head and she said, boy, I, I sure hope I never get that forgetful. And then, and then she knocked on wood, you know, for good measure. And then she yelled up to her sister. She goes, I'll be right up to help you both as soon as I see who's at the door. (laughs) Now, what changes for Mary and Martha is not old age, but a sudden, unexpected tragedy in their home, which was the death of their brother Lazarus. Death is an enemy. Death stands in opposition. It's the great opponent of life. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And everyone lives with a death anticipation of one kind or another. We all live with that knowledge that at any moment, everything we are and have in this life can be stripped away. And for some people, they live in fear of that. 
And for some people, they ought to live in fear of that. There's this knowledge that life can vanish away and I can be catapulted into the eternal state. Now, Woody Allen once said, tongue-in-cheek, he said, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, you have to be there when it happens. And it happens to everyone. On a more serious note, author Joseph Bailey writes these words, We may postpone it, we may tame its violence, but death is still waiting for us. Death always waits. The door of the hearse is never closed. Dairy farmer and sales executive live in death's shadow. With Nobel Prize winner and prostitute, mother, infant, teen, and old man. The hearse stands waiting for the surgeon who transplants a heart, as well as for the hopeful recipient. For the funeral director, as well as the corpse he manipulates. Death spares no one. And everybody lives with that knowledge that death is coming for everyone. Every now and then I get a little amazed that some people are actually shocked that people in their family die. I mean, it should happen to everybody else, but it shouldn't happen to me or to my family. Now, we, we know deep inside that it's going to happen to all of us. And w- with that framing, what I'm about to say, now I want you to listen to the greatest statement, the greatest piece of news that has ever fallen on your ears ever fallen on human ears. You ready for it? Verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He's saying those words to Martha, as we'll discover, but around him are his disciples. They've been following him now for three and a half years, or the better part of three years. Jesus' public ministry at this point is over. This is now his private ministry. This is now Jesus training those 12 men, preparing them because he knows he's going to leave. He's going to leave them And he doesn't want to leave them without any power, without any kind of resources. So he's training them, and this is part of their training. And there has been a theme throughout Jesus' ministry that comes up again here. I don't want you to miss this. And that is the theme of resurrection, and it's been progressive. This is what I mean. At first, Jesus announced his resurrection. He predicted his resurrection. He told his disciples he's going to rise again from the dead the third day. He said that while he was alive, years before it happened. He announced it. Number two, he demonstrated that he had power over death by raising different people to life. And then third, he will raise himself from the dead, showing that he is the resurrection and the life. So all of that is part of the progression and part of the teaching for these disciples. So they really need this because in a few months they're going to look up and see their Lord on a cross and they're going to flip out. They're going to be tempted to to bag it all. And so all of those things tied together are important. First of all, he predicts his resurrection. In John chapter 2, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John said he was speaking about his own physical body. 
Number two, he comes and raises Lazarus from the dead, demonstrating that he has power over death and authenticating what he just read, what we just read in verse 25. I'm the resurrection and the life. Look, I'll prove it to you. And he raises Lazarus up. Then third, he himself will raise from the dead, rise from the dead. When the disciples are able to connect those dots together, when they really realize it's true, this guy got up from the grave, he's alive, just like he promised and just like he proved with Lazarus, when they connect all of those dots, you know what's going to happen to them? They become unstoppable. They become bold as a lion. They become martyrs. They don't care what happens to them. Because they know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that is why you find in the New Testament book of Acts and the gospel messages preached by all the apostles, what is the central theme of their communication? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It so transformed their life. Now this morning we're going to begin in John 11 verse 17. And go down to verse 32, verse 33. And and there's basically two people that we're looking at. And then a third group. The two people are Martha and Mary. Because the first part, Jesus talks with Martha. The second part, Jesus talks with Mary. There are two personal conversations with them. So this morning, we want to look at Jesus and Martha. Jesus and Mary. And then finally, Jesus and you. And I'll show you how we apply that. In verse 17, we read, So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. You should probably know that in those days, they buried people immediately. Immediately. The Jews didn't practice embalming in those days. The climate was relatively warm, and so when a person died, they wrapped him up, put spices on the body, and put him in a tomb almost immediately. Then came a period of mourning, and the mourning among the Hebrews lasted for 30 days. The first seven were the most intense. During that period of time, a person would not anoint himself with oil, would not bathe, would not wear shoes, um, would... uh, sort of hang around in a disheveled state. It's a symbol of deep and intense mourning. And that was followed by another 20-some days, 30 altogether of mourning for the dead. Also, the mourning was very demonstrative, very emotional. Typically, as soon as a Jewish person heard that someone they loved died, they would grab their robe or their shirt and they would tear it and often beat the breast They would put sackcloth on and ashes on their head. In fact, at many funerals, they would hire professional mourners. I know it sounds really weird, but they actually would pay money to people to come in and wail. Because it was believed that the louder the noise that was made, the more the person was loved and missed. So you'd pay people, they'd come in, all the neighbors would hear it and they would know what had happened. They'd go, boy, somebody really loved that guy. That was typically how it went. Solomon wrote in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes these words, There is a time to weep. There is a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn. And there is a time to dance. And the Jewish people fully believed in that. That they would give themselves 30 days, an entire month, to go through the grieving process 
In fact, did you know the Egyptians did it for 70 days while the Hebrews did it for 30? Now, there's a mention in verse 17 of a certain number of days, four days. You see that? He'd already been in the tomb four days. John isn't just throwing that in as an unnecessary detail, but rather there was a belief 2,000 years ago among some of the superstitious Jewish people because of what some of their rabbis had written, saying that the spirit of a departed person will hover over the corpse for three days, seeking to re-enter. But by the fourth day, when decomposition has already set in physically, it's irreversible, and the spirit departs. And some people live with that superstition in their minds. And so John makes note of it. It is, by the way, the fourth day when everybody thought all bets are off. It is irreversible that Jesus shows up in Bethany. Now look at Martha's sorrow. It's pretty obvious. In verse 19, many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, something I just want you to pick up on as we mosey our way through the story. The action of these two sisters, Martha and Mary, is very much in keeping with what we already know about their personalities from other stories in the Gospels. Mary sat When Jesus was around, sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his word. Martha, on the other hand, was very active, on her feet, busy, scurrying about, complaining about this, complaining about that. And it was customary during a funeral time, the mourners, the one who had lost someone to death, like Mary and Martha, typically they they would sit. They would sit for the whole process and let others scurry around them and serve them and work for them and comfort them. But Martha, as soon as she hears Jesus is even close to town, shoots up, stomps out and goes to meet him. And that's where we find them meeting in these verses. I have a good friend who, well, he says a lot of things, but one of the things he says is people change, but not that much. And I would say that is never more true than with Martha and Mary. I'm sure they changed encountering Christ as they did, but they were still who they were. Now, here's what I want to say about this. What people say during times of grief, what comes out of their mouth during times of loss, cannot be weighed too heavily. Don't take it too seriously. That that emotional outburst that comes out of their mouth, that comes from deep loss and deep sorrow, has to be weighed and tempered with love and understanding. There was a Swiss-born psychiatrist named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who did a lot of research in death and dying. In fact, she counseled hundreds of patients who died and relatives who watched them die. And she noted that there is a classic stage or process uh, during a time of grief, normal stages of grieving that everyone she saw goes through typically. Stage number one is denial. When you hear that your husband or wife or friend dies, your reaction immediately is, no, it must be a mistake. This 
couldn't have happened. The second stage, says Ross, is anger. Blaming the doctors, blaming the nurses, blaming a relative. Why me? Why my child? The third stage of that is bargaining. Sometimes a patient will say, please just give me five more months, just just five more months. The fourth stage, which indicates the person's coming to terms with it, is the depression stage. The truth sets in. They know this is inevitable. They know this is irreversible. And so they come to grips with it, but they get very down and depressed. And the fifth stage, says Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, is the acceptance stage. After the depression, you see light at the end of the tunnel. I'm going to make it through this. We're going to marshal through this. And she says, I can follow that as a typical pattern in almost everyone who grieves a time of loss. So what you can expect is things like outbursts, wailing, tears, isolation, removal. Deep sorrow and loss is both profound as well as unpredictable. And, hear me, it's normal. It's normal. One great Bible scholar and pastor, through years of experience, writes these words. Let grief do its work. Tramp every inch of the sorrowful way. Drink every drop of the bitter cup. For those who truly love will say that they have found in sorrow a new joy. A joy which only the brokenhearted can know. Now, as you look a little more carefully at verse 21, you will notice the words that just pour forth, that flow forth from Martha's broken heart. She says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, why'd she say that? (laughs) I think she said that because that was uppermost on her mind. I think that it was not only uppermost on her mind, but on her sister's mind, because her sister is going to say exactly the same thing. In fact, they probably rehearsed it. I mean, they were calling for Jesus. Remember last week and Jesus didn't come? And after Lazarus died, they looked at each other and said, if Jesus would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And that thought was still ringing fresh in their ears. And so as soon as Jesus shows up, Martha pours forth, spews out what's on her mind. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to analyze that statement. I think it'll be beneficial. Notice that that statement is a limiting statement. It's limiting both in time and in space. Lord, if you had been here, as if to imply four days ago, you could have done something about this. That was then. This is now. Certainly, you're not going to do anything now. If you had been, that's being limited in time. But then look at the word here. If you had been here, that's limiting Jesus in space as if Jesus couldn't do a long distance miracle. He had to be here in Bethany. She must not have known about the story of the nobleman's son where Jesus said, go back, your son's alive. So here's Mary struggling, honest, pours it out. And she does the same thing again. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Can you hear that? You could have done something about it four days ago. 
you didn't. I know that someday, one day, in the sweet by and by, all that resurrection stuff, yeah, I'm there, I get that. But not here and not now. Martha is struggling. That's really all I want you to see with this. She's struggling. Her faith in God is challenged by the disappointment that she finds in life. We all do that. Now, we skipped, we skipped verse 22, and I want to go back to it, but in the context of verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now that sort of sounds like she's saying, should have been here, you could have done something about it, but even now you could still raise him from the dead. It sort of sounds like she's asking him for a resurrection of her brother. While it sounds that way, I personally don't believe that's what she meant. And here's why. In a little while, Jesus is going to walk right up to the tomb of Lazarus and tell the tomb attendants, roll away the stone. Who will protest? Martha. Martha will go, Lord, he's been dead four days. By now he stinketh. That's the King James. I can't resist that. It says too cool. He stinketh. Four days dead. It's gross in there. So that doesn't sound like a lot of faith, does it? So here's what I think is happening. She's struggling with her faith. She's saying, yeah, Lord, I know you're powerful and you can do anything, but he's been dead four days. It's a struggle. Um, Here's what I think. I think she just pours out her heart and then she catches herself. Here's the pouring out of the heart. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Ooh, I'm talking to Jesus. That didn't sound very spiritual. Now, Lord, I know that you can do anything. This is not unlike the man who had a demon-possessed son and brought him to Jesus. And Jesus said, he was at the end of his rope. Jesus said, if you believe, anything is possible to him who believes. Remember what the man said? He said, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. Get that? I believe, but I don't believe. I'm struggling here. I'm struggling believing you. That's the honest pouring forth of my heart. That struggle. People in grief struggle. Where were you, Lord, when my child died? Where were you, Lord, when my marriage dissolved? Where were you, Lord, when my parents divorced? Where were you, Lord, when my father became an alcoholic? Where were you, God, when I lost my job? Where were you, God, when my son or daughter walked away? That's the honest struggle. But then we say that, or we feel that, and then we catch ourselves and we go, Oh, yeah, but praise the Lord, I'm supposed to say that. It's just who we are. It's normal struggle through the times of life. And what I want you to notice is Jesus' response. It's not a lecture, not a sermon, not a correction. It's a short, positive statement. No rebuke, no condemnation. Your brother will rise again. I suppose Jesus could have said, Martha, I can't believe you just said that to me. Do you realize who I am? You know, I came here and, you know, I was like going to raise your brother from the dead. But, you know, now all bets are off. I was a little too disrespectful. 
No, short, it was positive, it was uplifting. Instead, he uses it as an opportunity to reveal more of himself. He says in verse 25, again, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So it's okay to grieve, it's okay to mourn, and, hear me, and it's okay to be honest with God and pour out your feeling in your heart before Him without any reservation. Last time I checked, He can handle it. Last time I checked, He's been around a long time, He's heard it all, He's seen it all. In fact, I actually get a little bit amazed and grateful of how much honesty is in the prayers of David in the book of Psalms. I mean, he didn't hold back. And God kept it as a record so we can go, oh, wow, he, even he did that. Listen to David. This is Psalm 13. Oh, Lord, how long will you forget me forever? That's pretty honest. How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemies have the upper hand? Now, none of those experiences were actually true, but it was true that David was feeling them and he honestly records them and God thought it important to preserve that. That's honest prayer. Here's another one. Psalm 58. David says concerning his enemies who are around him, break their teeth in their mouths, O God. I've always liked that psalm. Not because I like to see people's teeth broken, but simply because that's gutsy. That's honest, and that is in the Bible. You know what that tells me? God is unshockable. God is unshockable. When you pray something or you say something, God never goes, (gasps) He's heard it all. You think when Mary and Martha said, If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus went, (gasps) Not at all. Your brother will rise again. You gotta understand something. When you pray, even if it's a really great prayer, it doesn't impress God. Do you understand that? You think God ever goes, wow! Now that was such a cool prayer. Gabriel, write that down. MP3 that. We gotta have that as an archive. That was great. You don't impress Him. You can't impress Him. And if you can't impress Him by your prayers, I don't think you'll disappoint him by your honest prayers either. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. There is not a secret in my heart that I would not pour into the ears of my God. So Martha pours it out. That's Jesus and Martha. Now let's look at Jesus and Mary. Verse 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you, or the master is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. So he's still coming up the hill from the Dead Sea region. He's still walking up. He's still not in Bethany. And he stays there. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. They're mourners. Their job was to attend to her. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, 
saying to him, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now back up. Evidently, Jesus told Martha secretly, privately, to go give an invitation to marry her sister to come privately and talk to him. Which she did. She complied. And she comes out to see him. Now, anybody reading this can immediately see Mary said exactly the same thing Martha did. Exactly. But she made the statement and then she stopped. Anybody reads this and compares it closely can see there is a difference. And here's the difference. Martha debates with Jesus. Mary, however, you'll notice, falls at his feet, though brokenhearted, at his feet. And I would contend and say worshipped in love. Mary has the same words of Martha. I contend has a different attitude, an attitude of worship. Now, when we first meet Mary and Martha, that's Luke chapter 10. I already mentioned it once this week, once last week. In Luke chapter 10, when they first met, that's the night that Jesus is invited over. Lazarus is alive, healthy. Mary's there, Martha's there. Martha scurries about. She's busy. She's complaining. She's doing all the work. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. So, so let, me, let me frame it this way. When the days are good and the sun is shining and everybody's alive and everybody's happy and it's dinner time, where is Mary? At the feet of Jesus. But when the days are cloudy and the sun isn't shining and it's her brother's funeral day, where's Mary? Same place. Same place. See the difference? Martha's on her feet. Mary's at his feet. Now, you're going to go through both kind of days. So am I. You're going to have good days, bad days, days of joy, days of sorrow, days of gaining, days of profound loss and mourning. How are you going to do on those days? All depends on your position. Some of you, the only way you deal with grief is on your feet. You marshal through it, you stuff down the emotions, you just move on, you don't talk about it. And I don't know how far that wall is off, but you'll hit it one day. You can be on your feet or you can be at his feet. Job, who suffered, said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think that's Mary's position. An old Chinese proverb said, in the presence of trouble, some people grow wings Other people buy crutches. Mary sprouts her wings. Sprouts her wings. At Jesus' feet on the good days. At his feet in submission and love and worship on the bad days. That's Jesus and Martha. That's Jesus and Mary. I want to now look at Jesus in you and me. Go back now to verse 25 and 26, that promise. And notice something. Jesus said to her, that's Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And what's the next word? Whoever, not just you, Martha, not just her, Mary, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, that's an unconditional statement without any time boundary. Whoever. Whoever. You would be a whoever. 
I would be a whoever. Somebody who lives in Afghanistan or Iraq or South America or Europe would also be considered whoever. It's broad enough term. What a broad statement. What, a, what an incredibly broad promise. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The resurrection is more than an event. It's a person. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. In other words, wherever Jesus is, death doesn't stand a chance. And he will conquer death, whether it's your body, my body, Lazarus' body, or his own body. In the presence of Jesus, there is life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. One author said, there are two ultimate questions of our existence, which are, number one, has anyone ever cheated death? And number two, did he make a way for me to cheat death? Answer those questions. Anybody you know cheated death? Yeah, here's one. His name is Jesus. Did he make a way for me to cheat death? He sure did. He said in John 14, because I live, you also will live. And Paul said, when Christ who is our life shall appear, we shall appear with him in glory. I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, where I am, things are going to change. Now, this is the fifth of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Remember how we told you as we go through seven times Jesus said, I am something. He said, uh, number one, I am the bread of life. Number two, I am the light of the world. Number three, I am the door to the sheepfold. Number four, I am the good shepherd. Now, number five, I am the resurrection and the life. And there's two more to go. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, look at the question and apply it. Do you... Believe this. See, that's the theme of the book, isn't it? Believe. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? Do you really believe this? And now is the moment of truth to ask yourself, do I really believe this stuff? Because if I really believe this stuff, and moreover, and more definitely, if I believe this promise, you know what that means? It means death is no big deal. Honestly, death is not a big deal. What is death? Death simply opens the door for more life. Death catapults me into the eternal presence of God. That's why when Paul wrote about death in 1 Corinthians 15, he mocked death. He said, death, or oh grave, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? Ha ha. Because for a believer, death is nothing. It's graduation day. It's coronation day. Do you really believe this? Because it makes all the difference now and forever. I want to read you the words of a woman who really does believe this. And I want you to hear the difference. See if you know any unbeliever that has this kind of attitude. Here's a woman who wrote me a card. I jogged my memory and I thought, I do remember meeting here some years ago. But she gave me a Christmas card this year with a note in it. Dear Pastor Skip, we listen to you on the radio every day here in California. We lived through much joy in our marriage, 62 years of marriage. And some sad times and some losses. 
two daughters, one age 43 who died of cervical cancer, leaving three children, one daughter age 52 who died of liver cancer, plus a granddaughter that hung herself because her mom died. But we have never despaired, knowing God is in everything and true in his love. And even when I laid in a hospital in a coma from a lung infection. So here's a lady who said, you know, like Mary, when the days were really good and really happy, 62 years of marriage, I'm at Jesus' feet. And when life was really bad and there were some bad days, I was at Jesus' feet. And then she concludes... And she said, our life is in Jesus and our witness is in his love always. And then she wrote a little P.S. I never wrote a pastor a card before. (laughs) So I felt very special. And she said, I hope I didn't say too much. Actually, she said just the right amount. Very edifying. Okay, so here's, here's the close on this. Here's the deal on this. Martha goes to Mary and says, the master's calling for you. What does Mary do? She got up what? Immediately. She shot up and ran out. And people around her thought, well, that's weird. Where's she going? They didn't even get it. And do you think really that she cared if they got it or not? No, she just, Jesus is here. I'm going to go see him. Do you think her response was, the master's calling for you? Oh, okay, cool. Whatever. I'm I'm not into that. You know, I mean, I'll think about it. Maybe not now. Maybe later. Like the little girl who somebody asked her, do you obey your mother? And she said, I always do what she asked me to, but sometimes I go slow. (laughs) Did Mary go slow? Not at all. She ran out to Jesus. Didn't care what anybody thought of the decorum. She just went out and ran and was with him. Maybe you haven't come to Christ yet. Maybe you're a bit worried. Well, you know, if I were to actually make a commitment to Christ and find it to be true and real, I don't know what my friends would think about that. Well, really, think about it. If they're really your friends and they know you're going to heaven, they'll like it. If they don't like it, get some new friends. Don't worry about what anybody else thinks about the most important decision in your life. Don't let anybody else's opinion keep you away from his call. In fact, like Mary, you might be inspiring a few others to tag along. The Master is calling for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful. I look back on the day where you called me. I distinctly remember what I felt, what I knew to be true, what I knew I needed to do after years of searching and doubt, skepticism, anger. Thank you for your redemption. And I pray that as you would call some others this morning, that there would be a, not a resistance, but like Mary, a a willingness, a desire to come to the Master, to come to the Teacher, Jesus Christ, and find answers and find truth and find peace and find purpose and have sin forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.